Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given just six minutes to present, and this is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. This week's topics include reinventing business, liberty and rights as understood by the founders of our republic, after-hour clubs, and how Xerox Park and Bell Labs failed. Our first speaker is Sunil Gupta, who is the Edward Carter Professor of Business Education at the Harvard Business School. He is the author of the book, Driving Digital Strategies, A Guide to Reimagining Your Business Strategy. Sunil will discuss reinventing business today. Our second speaker is Brad Thompson, who is Professor of Political Science at Clemson, and he is also the author of America's Revolutionary Mind, A Moral History of the American Revolution and Declaration that Defined It. Brad will discuss how the founders of our republic conceived of citizens' rights and liberties. What happens next, historically, is focused on COVID, business, politics, and other academic interests, and has shied away from sex and drugs. Well, that is about to change when we chat with our third speaker, Terry Williams, who is a professor of sociology at the New School for Social Research. I was first introduced to Terry's ethnographic work when I read Terry's shocking book, Crack House, that described living in a New York City crack house. Terry has recently written a book entitled La Boogie Woogie, Inside an After Hours Club, that portrays life in a New York City club where cocaine is used openly. We will learn about what happens when social norms are violated. Terry will also discuss his upcoming book entitled The Soft City, Sex for Business and Pleasure in New York City, which depicts public sex acts. What happens next then investigates the success and failures of industrial labs, a totally different subject. Our first panelist is Mike Hiltzik, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist for the Los Angeles Times and the authors of Dealers of Lightning, Xerox Park, and the Dawn of the Computer Age. Mike will explain what Xerox Park's inventive process and how Xerox failed to capitalize on their innovations. Our final speaker is John Gertner, who is a writer for the New York Times Magazine and the author of the book, The Idea Factory, Bell Labs, and the Great Age of American Innovation. Bell Labs had been one of the most successful industrial labs with a host of inventions and patents. Bell Labs employed some of America's leading scientists who were doing cutting-edge basic and applied research. But after Bell Labs was spun out from Lucent uh, into Lucent, it quickly folded. I want to learn from Mike and John why industrial labs were once so successful and why today most research and new business ventures are coming out of entrepreneurial companies and not our largest and well-established firms. All right, let's begin today's session with Sunil Gupta, who will discuss reinventing business. Go ahead, Sunil. Thanks, Larry. Technology has changed every aspect of our life, and businesses are trying to adapt in this new world. Companies are using technology to improve efficiency, automate processes, enhance user experience, launch e-commerce sites, and create hackathons and scrum teams. And all these are good but have business leaders pause to think if the rules of business have fundamentally changed. Let me highlight one such fundamental change in how we need to rethink strategy. For decades, we've been told that strategy is about focus and competitive advantage comes from making your product better or cheaper. Now take a look at a company like Amazon and ask yourself, what business is Amazon in? Is it an online retailer, a cloud service provider, a hardware producer? an advertising giant, or a movie producer. It certainly doesn't look like focused strategy to me. Perhaps Jeff Bezos missed his strategy class. But somehow he has been able to build a $1.7 trillion company. What connects all these disparate businesses of Amazon, and is there a general lesson for all of us? 
The strategy paradigm of make it better or cheaper is a very product-focused view and assumes that you're selling one product to one customer at a time. But what if you offer multiple products as complements using a razor blade strategy? So you can sell Kindle cheap in order to make money on eBooks. You might say, what's new? Razor and Blade have been around for a long time. Yes, but today Razor can be in one industry and Blade can be in a completely different industry. Take Amazon Studio as an example. Why does it make sense for Amazon to spend billions of dollars to create its own movies and give it away for free? Well, Prime Video is a razor that creates stickiness among Prime customers who end up buying much more products on Amazon e-commerce site. In other words, Amazon Studio is a razor for its e-commerce business. In fact, Jeff Bezos has publicly said that every time we win a Golden Globe Award for our content, we sell more shoes. This idea of cross-industry complements can be extremely powerful. If Amazon wants to compete with banks by offering loans to small and medium enterprises, it can choose to offer loans at such a low rate that banks just won't be able to compete. How can Amazon do this? Well, it doesn't have to make money on loans if these loans help its merchants grow on its platform, which provides additional commission to Amazon in the long run. The moment you make a competitor's core business your razor, they will have a very hard time to compete. So the first dimension of the new strategy is about connecting products as complements. The second dimension is about connecting customers. Take the example of Facebook or Clubhouse. What's the value of Facebook if you are the only person in the world using it? Not much. As more people join Facebook, its value increases for you without any change in the product. So it's not about product, it's about connecting customers, and this is the classic network effect. So the digital economy is about connections, connecting products and connecting customers. And this is true not only for tech companies like Amazon or Facebook, but also for traditional product or service companies. Take the example of Peloton. Peloton could have used the traditional strategy paradigm to claim that its bikes are more expensive, but they are of the highest quality. But over time, competition catches up, and soon it becomes a race of product features with very little differentiation. As we all know well, Peloton chose a very different path. It built complements in the form of on-demand videos, and perhaps more importantly, it created a network of Peloton riders who can ride at the same time to get a virtual gym experience at home. It won't matter to Peloton customers if tomorrow a new competitor comes with a better bike because the new player won't have the community of riders that Peloton has. This strategy of connecting products and customers also cuts across traditional industry boundaries and changes the nature of competition. At some level, Prime Video is competing with Netflix and Disney+. Plus. However, while Netflix has to make money from its content, Prime Video is the razor for Amazon to drive its e-commerce business. When you have players in an industry with very different objective functions, the nature of the competition games changes. Now back to the issue of focus. Traditionally, we have defined focus based on the industry we compete in. So if you're a bank, you should focus on banking. But today, focus is defined by capabilities. And this focus on capabilities opens up completely new opportunities for growth. When Alibaba launched Taibao, it faced the challenge that buyers did not trust sellers. To solve this problem, Taobao created an escrow account where buyer's money is kept until they're satisfied with the product they received. But once Alibaba developed this capability or muscle to manage money, it went on to develop one of the largest wealth management companies in the world. MasterCard used the same strategy. It developed the analytical and data analytic and cybersecurity skills to manage its own business 
and then went on to leverage that muscle to generate almost 25% of the revenue from these new services. And perhaps the best example of this is, again, Amazon. Amazon used its computer vision technology to improve its warehouse operations and later used this capability to launch its cashierless Go stores. Recently, just last week, it announced the launch of a hair salon in London. This might seem strange for an online retailer until you recognize that this is the way for Amazon to test and leverage its technology muscle that could revolutionize offline retail the way AWS did in the online world. So let me conclude by saying that business leaders should be not simply thinking about technology to digitize existing operations, but re-examine the fundamentals of their business. Sunil, thank you. Um, so I want to start out with a competitor of Amazon <clears throat> first and try to think about uh, what they did right and what they did wrong. I think the precursor to Amazon was Sears, uh, a broad-based retailer that was able to touch lots of customers. It innovated from a catalog to retail spaces and started offering all sorts of interesting products. They offered the dis uh, Discovery credit card. Uh, they created all-state insurance. They created an auto, um, auto repair shop. Um, they were revolutionary with Allstate for auto insurance, a natural precondition. And they came up with a Sears credit card. Um, and yet Sears is, um, is either bust or close to bust. Um, what do you, when you compare Amazon and Sears uh, as they sort of develop products, why, is, um, why was Sears a failure? Um, why is Amazon a relative success? And is it a matter of time before Amazon uh, falls into the Sears problems? So I think that's an excellent question. And I would say the Sears leverage is existing customer base to offer new products. So once I have a large customer base, and by the way, Walmart is doing the same thing. Once I have this large customer base, I can offer healthcare, I can offer banking, I can offer lots of other services. Uh, and that's perfectly fine, but they're still using existing technology, existing capabilities to do that. All you're doing is leveraging the large customer base and you're hoping that this becomes a one-stop uh, one shop for, for all the products that you're offering. What Amazon is also doing in addition to that is sort of understanding customers where the customers are moving. Uh, so for example, it's saying that, look, one of the biggest challenges for customers in the offline world is the pain that they, that they face when they are standing in line to pay. Uh, and that's why it leverages existing technology to develop completely new stores, the, the Go stores. So I think the difference in, part of the difference is Amazon is not standing still using the same model that has served its well in the last 25 years, which I believe Sears did the same thing, the same store, the same catalog, the same system. And it didn't change that in the 25 years. But having said that, I think that the fear still exists for Amazon that it becomes so big in the existing technology base that tomorrow a completely different world comes and it might be very hard for Amazon to build. Um, I like the metaphor of razor versus blades and how you applied it um, across the board. Um, you know, it, 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 you, I remember that Warren Buffett used to say he only likes to buy businesses that have a moat. Um, but it, yours is not moat-like at all. It's sort of like an interesting way of uh, of a break of not having to show a profit in one to capture another. Um, it's sort of completely different. How do you compare and contrast um, the razor and blade versus the moat model? 
So I think the moat model is the traditional model of differentiation that you're so good at something, either you have a cost advantage because the standard cost leadership because I have economies of scale and therefore my costs are so low that nobody else can compete and that's my mode. Or I have innovation and R&D, uh, so I will innovate at a faster speed or I have such fantastic technology or, or a, uh, proprietary technology that nobody else can do it. And that's fine and nice and that's still important. A good product is still important, but the reality is that even if you're Apple and you have the best phone in the world, well, Samsung will catch up at some point in time and it becomes a, a war of features. Uh, so Samsung will have three cameras and iPhone will come with three cameras and Samsung will put four cameras in the back and iPhone will put four cameras in the back. And that is sort of a strategy that doesn't go very far. So I think having a good product and good product differentiation is a necessary but not sufficient condition to compete in this world. You know, we're going to be talking about Apple later in the show as it relates to Xerox PARC. Um, but when you think about Apple's razor or, or versus their blades, how do you think about what – I can see now that they're, they're caught in an arms race, um, but how do they break through to crush um, music providers or phone providers or – computer providers, what is it, what was it, what was their offering that made it more razor-like? So for the longest time, Apple has been focused on devices, right? I mean, a majority of the revenue and profit has been coming from iPhone or, or MacBooks, et cetera. But now they've realized that this is, has a limit. A number of iPhones uh, shipments over time is not going to be the same that it was 10 years ago. Uh, so uh, more recently, in the last five, seven years, they've gone heavily into services, So whether it's Apple Music or Apple TV or other things. And it's already, if I remember correctly, it's almost like 20, 25% of their revenue is actually now coming from services, and that is likely to increase. And many of these services, uh, they will actually offer at a much lower price because that helps them lock in the customer on the devices as well. And that's a symbiotic or the razor blade story. And the beauty of the razor blade is that you can always change where you make money. You can make the razor the blade or the blade the razor as the competition changes. Um, I want to ask a question about banking. Um, the regulators have been very fearful of allowing industrial firms or I call it non-bank regulated firms to engage in making activity. Um, they've banned Walmart from acting as a bank, but you sort of mentioned that Amazon is, is considering sort of banking-like relationships. Can you expand on threats from the regulatory state to allow them to expand into that environment? No, I wasn't suggesting that Amazon will go into banking. I'm saying that hypothetically, if Amazon were to go into banking, that's what they could do. If I were Amazon, I will never go into banking because I will be more regulated. What I will do is I'll partner with an existing bank. But think about it. If I partner with the existing bank, who owns the customer relationship? It'll be Amazon. So bank will become the back-end story or the dumb pipe at the back-end, and therefore that becomes a commodity. Uh, so the relationship that Amazon will build with its customers that they can provide other services will make it difficult for the other players to compete in the marketplace. And that was the point. Uh, I don't think Amazon will, or at least as far as I know, has any reason to go into banking right now. Trying a, a kind of a different angle, um, we had um, a panel on antitrust, and they focused on several of the names that you listed today. Um, mm -hmm. Amazon, Facebook, um, Walmart, 
to a lesser extent. Um, there, there's a big fear of big tech. Um, as big tech applies these uh, applications of the razor and the blades and building and strengthening social networks, they seem to anger and frustrate the regulators. Uh, is that just inherent in the business model? And is that going to be problematic if it continues to accelerate? No, I think that the challenge is if you look at the typical antitrust policies that have been designed for the last century, they're based on two fundamental principles. One is do the companies do harm to consumers if they become too dominant in terms of raising prices, for example? And the other is uh, do they uh, have a large share of a particular industry so that, and whatever large share, maybe it could be 30% or 40%, so they become so, that's the definition of dominance in the industry. And that may be true, for example, for Google, because Google has a dominant share in the digital advertising business or Facebook in the social network. But I think it becomes more fuzzy in the case of a company like Amazon, because Amazon is so many industries, it's very hard to define what business it is in and share of what industry are you talking about. Uh, share of retailing, it has a very small percentage. Share of online retailing, yes, it has a large share, but they can define uh, we are in the retailing business, not just online retailing because of the omni-channel story. Are they in advertising? Are they in movie production? So I think the first question is the definition of the industry becomes fuzzy, and therefore the traditional antitrust regulations, regulators have trouble defining does Amazon have a dominant share in an industry because the definition of industry itself is different. Uh, the second uh, a basic dimension of antitrust is, is, is it doing harm to the consumers? And most consumers that I know of and whatever research that we have done basically love Amazon because it, it, they can get anything very conveniently, usually in a day or so, at a much lower price. So what's not to like? So I think it feels like Amazon is becoming dominant and it's actually hurting some businesses. But on the other hand, the traditional two dimensions that antitrust looks at Amazon seems uh, like uh, slipping through those things. So you don't think that they will just change the rules of the game in terms of not using those two metrics as the decision maker, but maybe some other method to um, consider it foul. I mean, you're right. They, they're not harming customers. Um, they're making it better. They're not, it's not that large, and they're not doing it by acquisition. But it, it still somehow seems to anger and frustrate um, I'll call it the progressive antitrust movement, that they want to go after both Facebook and Google and Amazon and essentially Microsoft as well, or historically wanted to go after Microsoft. Right. So do you think right. And I think Facebook and Google are much clearer because they have a dominant share of one particular industry. Mm -hmm. uh, Amazon, because its industry is less well-defined, that's why it becomes a little bit more difficult. I think what Amazon will face the challenge is if it it is... Uh, proved that it is actually, and, and this is uh, some discussion that goes on in the media also, that some of the small sellers are complaining against Amazon that Amazon basically, once they find out that I as a small seller are selling good on their platform, they end up selling the same product and effectively compete with me. Uh, and that might be considered anti-competitive because it basically hurting the small merchants. Uh, and Amazon many times offers its own private label brands once it sees, so it uses the small merchants as a market research to see which products will do well and then ends up selling its own product. Now, that will get into this trouble if it's using merchants' data to launch its own businesses and compete with them. Uh, and I think that has been in the discussion to some extent.
I want to ask you a question about vertical versus horizontal integration. Um, when I went to business school, we were told that vertical integration is like a false um, concept, that it, it sounds good on paper, but very rarely has the sort of benefits you assume. But horizontal integration is spectacular. Um, it gets rid of a competitor. We're able to get, get more market power. Um, and that's why we run into friction with the antitrust people. In the examples you were giving with Amazon, uh, you were giving extremely broad examples of vertical integration. We weren't looking at movie theaters making movies. We were looking at a, uh, a retail store um, making movies. Why do you think that the uh, vertical integration in this bizarre fashion is actually a good idea uh, relative to the historic vertical integrations uh, maintained or attempted by its competitors? So I think the traditional vertical integration is about control, control of the entire supply chain. So if I'm making computers, I start also vertically backward integrating into making chips or forward integrating into having stores, and that was the traditional model. But that's still the same industry, and the hope was by having more control, I will actually have better economies of scale, better experience, and to some extent, Apple is doing that, right? It's making its own chip, it has its own stores, it makes its own products, et cetera. Uh, so if, but it, by and large, that gives you more control, but that means that if tomorrow industry shifts uh, and you are still caught in the same innovation, you will have difficulty moving along with the industry. Amazon's integration, or what you're calling vertical integration, is very different. It's not in the same industry. It's, it's basically connecting dots across industries. But ultimately, if you, ask, uh, if you ask me as to what are the key capabilities of Amazon that defines what business it will get into or not, I will say it has three core capabilities. One is logistics. It's very, very good in logistics, as, as good or better than Federal Express and UPS. Uh, it's, it's very good in technology. Uh, clearly, AWS is an example, but it, it knows lots of other components, so whether it's computer vision of AI or others. And the third is it's very good and obsessed with customer focus, both in terms of culture as well as in terms of leveraging data to understand customer preferences. So anything that touches these three, these three things it will actually get into. Now, you call it vertical integration, but I don't see this the same way as we thought of vertical integration back in the 80s and 90s. Then let's go back to the, I'll call it the, the 1910s to 1920s, 1930s for Sears. So Sears goes from a catalog, it goes to a retail store, and only at the retail store, it says, my God, they're getting here by car, we should really create an auto center. And then when they had an auto center, they said, oh, we should probably create our own batteries, die hard. We should probably offer our, our tool set, think craftsmen. Um, and then they should take it away with our, um, uh, our own, I've got the, their brand for uh, uh, dishwashers. Um, but, Kenmore. you know, Kenmore, thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, so, and then they started offering auto insurance. And they came up yeah. with auto insurance and were able to mass market auto insurance. Is that the sort of... Um, vertical that reminds you of Amazon and when it, Sears was being successful and when Sears stopped doing that, it was problematic? No, I think your analogy of Sears is very apt. And in some ways, you can say Amazon is the new Sears in some ways, and it may face the same fate as Sears did. Uh, but I think Sears could have been the new Amazon because it had all the underpinnings of a very successful business model for a very long time. But internet changed the fundamentals of the business for Sears, and it still remained a retail business. Uh, if it had changed the way Amazon changed, it could have been the Amazon. So again, 
I mean, in all fairness, we are drawing analogy from one data point in both the cases of Amazon as well as Sears. But I think the what I'm trying to understand is, are the principles of Amazon apply beyond just Amazon? So take the example of razor and blade. Uh, so I'm on the board of this company called US Food, which is a large food distributor. And we started thinking about as how do we apply the razor blade analogy to a food distributor like US Foods? And this company sells, distributes food to small independent restaurants like mom and pop restaurants owners. Uh, and the, traditionally, the way the company has been and still uh, sells its products is I go to a restaurant and say, my fish is better or my fish is cheaper. Make it better or cheaper, the traditional strategy and paradigm. Uh, guess what the competition does? The competition does the same thing. They come and say, hey, my fish is better or my fish is cheaper. Very soon, the quality of fish is the same. And over time, it becomes a price competition and becomes a commodity. And that happens to every industry. So we started saying, hey, what might be the razor for our industry? Now, it sounds strange. What do you mean razor for a fish? But then the best way to think about this is put yourself in the shoes of a customer. Forget about your product for a while. So if you were to put yourself on the shoes of an independent restaurant owner and ask yourself, what keeps up this restaurant owner up at night? You don't have to know the research to know that 60 to 70% of the restaurants go out of business every year, and this is pre-COVID. And that's because these restaurant owners, they love food, they love to cook, uh, but they don't know how to run a business, small business. They don't know how to manage their finances. They don't know how to manage labor. They don't know how to generate traffic. They don't know how to manage inventory. Uh, and that's the real problem, not the price of fish. The moment we realize that, we started offering software services to these restaurants, many produced by the company and some others uh, licensed from third party, third party providers provided a subsidized discount. Now that's the razor, which I can offer to these restaurants solving a fundamental problem. And the moment I do that, the conversation shifts from the price of fish because I'm solving a real problem. So that's a very different way of doing business. And again, I'm using the same analogy of Amazon, but in a very, very different context. Another thing about Amazon, which is really unbelievable to me, is their willingness to um, challenge one of their other businesses. So, for example, um, the Amazon Marketplace offers the exact same products that they offer on Amazon, potentially at a cheaper price, by one of their competitors. Um, yes. We didn't see Kodak um, make the transition between analog and digital, and there was probably resistance internally to doing such. But Amazon yeah. seems to be willing to attack themselves in order to expand the pie. Somehow the entrenched bureaucracy uh, that undermined Kodak or AT&T or whatever doesn't exist at Amazon. What makes that special and why is there no inherency to the existing way of doing business? I think it's the Jeff Bezos philosophy of customer first, and he somehow has been able to instill that in the company, even if it means it hurts our own business. So the prime service is a great example. And there were internal debates when they offered the prime service, which is two-day free shipping. Mm -hmm. There was a huge concern that this would eat hugely into the profit of the company. And uh, it was very likely that most people who will use the prime service initially, these were the heavy buyers to begin with, who would order tons of products at a basically free shipping and it'll cost the company a ton. But they tested it because they say, hey, this is actually worth testing because it'll be good for the customers. So they have done these things again and again. 
uh, which have cut into their business. And I think you have to truly believe uh, that if you serve the customers well, in the long run, it will pay off. In the short run, it might hurt. Uh, now, I, I realize it's very hard to do because it, in the short run, it will cannibalize your existing business, which is what happened to Kodak and many other places. Neil, thank you. I'm going to go on to our second speaker. Uh, but I forgot to warn all of our speakers uh, in the pregame that at the end of the call, I'm going to turn back to you and ask you for a note of optimism, uh, something that's very challenging in our times of COVID. All right, moving on to our, our second speaker is Brad Thompson. Brad is a professor of political science at Clemson. He's written the book, American's Revolutionary Mind, A Moral History of the American Revolution and Declaration that Defined It. And he's going to talk about liberty and rights from the founding of our republic. Go ahead, Brad. Thanks, Larry. <clears throat> Fact. The American Revolution is the most important event in American history. It announced the birth of a new nation, defined the noblest ideals and aspirations of the American people, and it created the world's first written constitutions and Republican governments. Not surprisingly, the revolution is the most studied event in American history, which raises the obvious question. Is there anything new and original left to say about the American Revolution? That was my challenge when I set out to write my book, America's Revolutionary Mind. My goal was to rethink the deepest causes and consequences of the American Revolution. But the key to understanding what my book is about and why it's unique is contained in its subtitle. It's a moral history of the American Revolution and the declaration that defined it. Now, of course, there have been social, economic, political, religious, constitutional, military, and diplomatic histories of the American Revolution. But there has never been a moral history of the American Revolution. So my book begins with a puzzle. It attempts to unravel the meaning of two well-known statements, one by John Adams and one by Thomas Jefferson. In 1815, John Adams asked a simple question. What do we mean by the revolution? He did not think the war for independence was the true revolution. The war, he said, was only an effect and consequence of the revolution. The real revolution, he continued, was a moral revolution in the minds of the people in the 15 years before shots were fired at Lexington and Concord. In 1825, Thomas Jefferson described the Declaration of Independence as an expression of the American mind. This means that the Declaration is a summing up of the moral revolution described by Adams. My book, therefore, uses the Declaration as an ideological roadmap by which to chart the intellectual and moral terrain traveled by American revolutionaries as they searched for new moral principles in order to combat British tyranny. The book examines the most famous sentence ever written in American history. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, what did the founders mean by equality and rights? Let's start with equality. 
Let me begin by telling you what the founders did not mean. Equality did not mean sameness. The founders knew that there is an inequality of measurable human attributes. Not all men and women are equal with regard to speed, strength, and intelligence. The founders recognized a natural aristocracy of talents and abilities. So in what sense then did they mean that all men are created equal? By equality, the revolutionary generation believed in what I call species equality, which means that all humans share certain fundamental attributes, namely reason and free will, that distinguish them from horses and dogs, which means that each person has an equal right to be self-owning and self-governing. That is, there is no natural right to rule. As Jefferson once said, because Sir Isaac Newton was superior to others in understanding, he was not therefore lord of the person or property of others. Now, what does the Declaration mean when it talks about unalienable rights? The founders always referred to man's unalienable rights as natural rights, which means they do not come from government. Their immediate source is nature and human nature. In the wake of the Stamp Act in 1765, colonial Americans came to reject the idea of the so-called rights of Englishmen, which are the rights of a particular people at a particular place at a particular time. The Americans searched during the 1760s and the early 1770s for a standard of right that was absolute, permanent, and universal. The revolutionaries' doctrine of rights provided them with a natural standard of right and wrong that defines and protects man's moral requirements in a social context. Natural rights are moral principles that serve as both a license to act and a fence to protect man's freedom in a social context. The rights of nature recognize certain facts of human nature. One, that it is necessary and right for individuals to freely exercise their rational faculties. Two, that it is necessary and right that man should be free to choose and pursue actions required to support life. Three, that it is necessary and right to act in order to acquire, keep, use, and dispose of property. And four, that it is necessary and right to pursue the values required for human flourishing and happiness. Now, obviously, the big question is, how could American revolutionaries support equality and rights and yet own other human beings as slaves? In other words, Weren't they hypocrites? Now, this is obviously a large and a complex topic, but let me just very quickly give you a, a few points. First, all of America's founding fathers believed that slavery was either a necessary evil or simply an evil. Second, the Declaration's principles represent the greatest force, in my view, in world history for ending slavery. 
Third, the founders did not abolish slavery, I think, for three principal reasons. One, they thought it would die a natural death. And of course, they were wrong, uh, particularly after the invention of the cotton gin. Two, they, and this is, the, this is the heart of the issue, they could not solve what I call the post-emancipation problem. And three, of course, it was their own moral failings, the failings of people like Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry, who understood that slavery was, an, uh, was immoral and, 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 and a violation of the rights uh, of their slaves, and yet they did not free their slaves. And that's it. Thank you. Terrific. Um, I want to start out with a question. Um, it seemed to me that when you gave the example of the Stamp Act, that the issue related to um, the relationship between, I'll call it the colonial legislature and the British Parliament, where they felt they weren't represented. Um, but their complaint really wasn't with the king. It, they seemed to have it allowed for an executive, uh, called aristocratic executive, uh, but their complaint was more with their inability to participate directly in, in Parliament. Do you think that the declaration was a challenge against both the king and the parliament? Was it really meant to be against parliament only, and that only when the king came to defend parliament did it become a, un, uh, a unified attack? Was this, in, our, in our, I'll call it, high school classrooms, they emphasized um, our attack against King George III. They did not mention parliament per se as the real problem. How do you think about that? Yeah, that's a great question, Larry. So first, the Declaration of Independence, written in 1776, is really only directed at King George III. But the fact of the matter, however, is that between 1765 and 1774, all of the actions taken by the British government were passed by, by the British Parliament. So the Stamp Act, the Declaratory Act, the Townsend, the Tea, and the Coercive Acts, of course, were all passed by Parliament. Uh, and the real issue uh, in the 1760s and 1770s was who was ultimately sovereign uh, in the colonies? Was it the British Parliament or was it the colonial legislatures? Um, and so all of the American arguments between the Stamp Act and the Coercive Acts were all directed against Parliament. They were not directed against the king. It was not until 1775 when, um, when the British Parliament, uh, with the support of George III, passed the Prohibitory Act, which took the colonies out of, out of the king's uh, protection that the Americans then turned their their attention to George III. I mean, you don't really get any critiques of George III until January of 1776, when Tom Paine publishes uh, *Common Sense*, which is which is uh, directed specifically at at the king. But up until that point, all of the American arguments were against uh, the British Parliament. And, and there's a, I won't go into details now. It's a, there's a very sophisticated argument that the Americans make. But the, I'll just say this. The first line of defense for the colonists was to disconnect 
and end their relationship with the British Parliament. And that takes place between 1765 and 1774. And then the final cut with Great Britain ends with their, in effect, metaphorically speaking, cutting off the king's head, uh, which, which is really represented in Tom Paine's common sense. So, and that's precisely why by the time you get to the declaration, I mean, the Americans have made the argument now that their only connection to Great Britain is through the person of the king, because they've already disconnected their, their relationship to Great Britain through parliament. So that's why the declaration is directed against George III. Um, I want to change um, the perception of the declaration through American history. Um, immediately after Dred Scott, Abraham Lincoln um, goes back to the declaration and uses it as a tool against uh, the supporters of Dred Scott. He emphasizes um, that key, the sentence that you actually just reiterated about uh, all men are created equal. Uh, and it didn't say just, you know, former citizens of Britain. Um, how do you think about Lincoln's view of the Declaration and then using it again as the key document with that key sentence as being the essence of the argument? So, for example, in the Gettysburg Address, when he then refers to it as, you know, four score and seven years ago, he's again referencing that document again as being the most critical to the founding of the Republic. How is Lincoln uh, an ally of this declaration relative to other politicians of this period? Yeah, so I yeah. think Abraham Lincoln is the single greatest proponent um, and in many ways, the great poet of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, his, his reaction uh, to the Dred Scott case, as you noted, his speech on the, on the Dred Scott decision really lays out his view of what the Declaration meant by its core fundamental truth, namely equality and rights. And what he says there is that the Declaration attempts to establish a standard maxim for a free society, which that society um, will always hold up, will always look to, and even though it, it doesn't perfectly achieve uh, the, the ideal uh, and doesn't put into practice, those principles all the time, it is nonetheless that standard maxim that all Americans should be striving to live up to. So uh, yeah, I, I think without question that, that Lincoln, Lincoln's interpretation of the Declaration and um, his, his arguments uh, against first Stephen Douglas uh, for the senatorship of Illinois uh, and, and then in his run for, for the president and then as president himself. Lincoln was, um, uh, what was always uh, a defender of the Declaration of Independence. And interestingly enough, so was William Lloyd Garrison. Right, the, 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 in effect, the founder of the abolitionist movement in, in the 1830s. Garrison believes that the abolition movement which he founded was, was at its heart an attempt to resurrect, defend, and promote, and realize the principles of the Declaration um, in antebellum America. Brad, this is Sunil Gupta. I have a quick question, and you briefly mentioned this about 
slavery and the declaration and how you reconcile. But this has been a puzzle for me for the longest time, that the founders on one hand say all men are created equal, and still they decided to keep the slaves, and the slavery was not abolished for a long period of time, even today, with Black Lives Matter and everything else, it's not clear that our politicians who on one hand claim that they believe in the Constitution actually live by its, uh, its basic principle. Are we yeah. living in a hypocritical world or, or there's something else going on? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think uh, let's just go back to uh, the period of the American founding. And is the, is the charge that some of America's founding fathers were hypocrites? Uh, legitimate? Yes, absolutely. Of course, it's legitimate. And we should morally judge and condemn those founders, I believe, like Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry, uh, who were on the one hand, the most articulate defenders of, of equality and rights and liberty, and yet did not free their slaves. However, there is, I think, a larger context in which to understand the founders view of slavery. So the first thing to say, is that there was a range of views amongst America's uh, revolutionary generation on the slavery question. So on the one hand, you have people like uh, John Adams who their entire lives were morally opposed uh, to the institution of slavery and said so. Then you, then you had um, uh, certain founders like Benjamin Franklin and John Jay, for instance, who in their, in their uh, early years uh, as, as young men in the, 17, in the 1750s, for instance, and 60s, um, owned a slave, but eventually they freed their slaves. And then, most importantly, they then founded um, anti-slavery societies. Then you get uh, people like George Washington, who was a lifelong slave owner, but freed uh, his slaves in his will uh, after the death of his wife. And then finally, the most important, the hardest cases, uh, the hardest case obviously is Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson throughout his life um, recognized and wrote, uh, and in fact, in the original uh, draft of the Declaration of Independence, uh, denounced slavery. And he denounced slavery in his summary view of the rights of Englishmen. Um, and uh, and, and, and in private correspondence, condemned the evil that is slavery. For Jefferson, the problem, in addition to um, his, ultimately, I, I think it just has to be said, his moral cowardice. Um, I'm uh, more than willing to condemn Jefferson for, for his moral cowardice. For Jefferson, the single biggest problem was what I've called the post-emancipation problem. Right, so it's, you know, let's be frank. It's, it's easy for people in 21st century America to judge and condemn uh, the founding generation for, for not uh, ab abolishing slavery. But you have to try and understand it, as I've done in, in my book, from the perspective of 1776 or the perspective of the founding period in general. And the, the, the single biggest question that they, that they struggled with was, even if we could wave a magic wand and free um, the slaves today, then what, right? That was, that was the question that they, that they simply could not wrap their heads around. And 
that there there were I mean genuine cha challenges um, to and, and they had all kinds of you know sort of plans uh, or potential plans colonization plans uh, for instance um, but none of which were really very feasible and they just they couldn't think their way through the problem now that may seem like a cop out and in the end ultimately uh, it was a it was a cop out I, I believe but and let me just mention one last thing. The fact of the matter is, after the publication of the Declaration in July of 1776, every state in the North began the process of gradually emancipating the slaves in those individual states. It took about 25 years, but by 1803, every single state in the North had, had, um, had abolished slavery. So it's 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 not that they that they didn't want to it's not that they didn't try in some places they did so it's a very complex issue um and and i and i think we have to give credit where credit is due and we have to morally judge and condemn uh those who fail to live up to their own highest moral ideals hey, this is larry i want to go back to um what people thought of the Declaration through time. So at Lincoln, at the Gettysburg Address, he defines it as our great moral underpinning. Um, but that's, we're a long time away now, 150 years past that point. Um, how, what was the view of the Declaration o over time? I, I think it's interesting that you emphasize the necessary uh, right to acquire and use property. So you, you go back to the John Locke definition uh, of you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of property versus pursuit of happiness. Um, has the question of right to acquire and use property been under attack since the last 150 years? And is, does the progressive movement, does the pragmatist movement, um, do they, the socialist movements, do they underpin these same moral guidelines or have certain aspects of our society moved away from the basic moral principles of the founders? Well, this is very interesting. The first critics of the Declaration of Independence uh, were pro-slavery Southerners. So between approximately 1830 uh, and up to the end of the Civil War, uh, there was a generation of Southern intellectuals uh, who critiqued the Declaration of, of Independence. They came to see the Declaration uh, and the philosophy underlying the Declaration as that which they had uh, uh, to, to fight and condemn. So with the Founding Fathers, their view of slavery was that it was a necessary evil with the emphasis on evil. By the, by the late 1830s, you get a generation of uh, Southern pro-slavery intellectuals who now view slavery as a positive good, as, as they called it. And what was inter what's, I think most interesting uh, ab about these pro-slavery Southerners, which I lay out in the uh, epilogue to my book titled, Has America Lost Its American Mind? And this generation of pro-slavery Southerners were drinking deeply from the well of 19th century German philosophy, particularly the philosophy of Hegel, 
which they then adapted to their situation uh, in antebellum America. And with Hegel's doctrine of, of historicism, which says that there are no absolute certain permanent universal truths like those contained in the Declaration, but rather truth is situated in a particular time and in a particular place. And these pro-slavery Southerners went through each, well, first they critiqued the idea of truth, truth, capital T truth, truth is absolute, permanent, and universal. And then they denied the fact that all men are created equal. They denied that men have inalienable rights because they argued that rights evolve, uh, change, progress over time. Uh, and they clearly rejected the idea of, of consent and revolution. And then ultimately, what's most interesting about these pro-slavery Southerners is that by the 1850s, they came to uh, adopt socialism uh, as the preferred form of government. They argued, I mean, this is, if you think about it, it's really quite extraordinary. They argued, uh, in the words of the leading pro-slavery Southern intellectual, George Fitzhugh, that, and I'm quoting, that communism was the beau ideal of, of what they call plantation socialism. Fast forward now to the early 20th century. What's very interesting is that the progressive intellectuals, primarily, I would say, John Dewey, Woodrow Wilson, uh, Herbert Crowley, for instance, they too launched a critique of the principles of the Declaration of Independence on the same philosophic grounds that the pro-slavery Southerners had done, namely that, that they, they rejected the idea that there are absolute certain permanent moral truths, that all truth is relative to time and place, um, and that what was true in 1776 cannot be true in 1912. Uh, and so they, too, using arguments remarkably similar to the pro-slavery Southerners, uh, went through and rejected all the core fundamental principles that come out of the revolution, namely individual rights, limited government, and laissez-faire capitalism. Brad, thank you so much. We're going to go on to our next speaker. Uh, that's Terry Williams. Uh, Terry is a professor of sociology at the New School for Social Research in New York City. Uh, he is uh, the author of Lagogi Wookie, Inside an After Hours Club, and he will be discussing, um, I'll call it, After Hours in New York, Sex and Drugs. Go ahead, Terry. Come with me. Go ahead. Come with me. I want to take you to this place I found in Hall. You hear that knock? It's a special knock. Only those in the know will understand its meaning. Without that knock, you will not get in. The two guards won't say anything to you. Just nod and follow me down this long hall, gambling in the back, drinks at the bar, topless dancing in, the, in an hour. You hear that music? That's Boogie Woogie. Go through those hanging beads and don't bump your head. To the left is the bar. They're all sniffers there. Yes, that's cocaine they're sniffing. 
they called it blow. That's the owner, Frenchy, standing over there. But as you watch him, listen to me tell you what this place is all about. Day Boogie Woogie was a place of continued emotional release and discovery through drug use, fostering a collective sense of being. The drug use, the conversations, the sex play, the competition between the girls, each trying at times to outperform the other for tips and, and attention. Whatever took place in this club was an alternative to life as many people knew it. Drug use, for example, was complicated. People were high in a way different from an alcohol-induced high. They were stimulated, talkative, nervous, paranoid, sexually excitable, and thirsty. The barmaid role was complicated, too. She had to take on the crowd and deal with the bartender and all the hullabaloo going on around her. She had to take orders while the jukebox was blasting, with the crowd pulling at her coattails, with men and women filling her ass. The guy who just gave her a $100 bill was now locked on, and whatever he wanted, he got, including a body bump and a rub when, the, when he got past her. In this after-hours world, cocaine was an essential element in the quest to stay cool. The after-hours world also regulated its use. Even though my research is descriptive and might best be described as a micro-ethnography based on personal observations, I make analytical sense of this social world as it existed within the ecological and cultural networks of the city. In other words, this narrative is a theory of how a particular human group make sense of their world. I continuously ask, what does it all mean? By providing a description of what goes on in the club, I also try to uncover the importance and the meaning of relations and how those relations are framed and maintained by unwritten rules of established order within the club. Lay Boogie Woogie is an example of what it means to be part of a subculture, a subculture that no longer exists as it once did. In Lay Boogie Woogie, the cocaine club's primary group bond was the intimacy among patrons. It was a sharing, touching, a nose-to-nose -nose relationship where everyone was breaking the law together. Now let's go to the soft city. The soft city, for business and pleasure in New York, focuses on people who openly and freely experiment with their sexuality. Some might see this as urban degradation, but I see it at, as that extreme moment when the city awaits the imprint of an identity for good, bad, or indifferent. I see it as that rare moment that invites the voyeur, the stranger, the visitor, the resident, the other, to come in and play and be molded by it when the city goes soft. In the soft part of the city, once you've decided who you are, the city will assume a fixed form around you. Soft city 
is the place of sex shops and body houses, hotels of assassination, sex worker strolls, gay spots, pimp bars, after-hours clubs, burlesque joints, peep shows, and $5 sex emporiums. The soft city is a journey of discovery, exploration into a perverse space. Jerry, I don't even know where to start with this one. Um, let me, um, let's go back to the Boogie Woogie for a second, um, mm-hmm. where everyone is intimately connected uh, in breaking the law. Um, how, do they, how do they think about that? How do they know? Uh, it, how has how their behavior changed from being outside the Boogie Woogie to being in the Boogie Woogie? Is there a huge sense of relief that they get to do what they want to do without having to worry about the law? Are they worried about blackmail? Um, are other people are some of the people there trying to have a dual life to look clean to the outside world but be dirty inside, uh, where others don't face that criteria? How do they think about life inside and outside the boogie woogie? Well, I mean that's a good a good question, but keep in mind that I'm really trying to provide a portrait of the after hours life and a particular historic moment. Um, and so the historical situation is, I think, is more fully, and I, I sort of incorporate these various features in it. But, uh, but the sociology, I've always believed that what's important is, is to, uh, just to answer your question, uh, what's important, I felt, was to, is to capture disappearing social worlds in the city because, because I think through this work I was searching for a lot of patterns that could bring about a measure of social justice in a way. So these patterns need to be made rather explicit. And I was trying to do that in these two clubs. Um, and uh, there's also a great deal of self-reflection, so I'm not sure if that question an- is answered here, but that's what I was trying to do. Howard Becker has that book, The Outsider, where he looks at um, – the marijuana smoker. Um, he looks at uh, the homosexual clubs, and he argues that the people who were the marijuana smoker or the homosexual felt very comfortable in their own shoes. They just felt uncomfortable in mainstream society. Um, is the cocaine club some combination of those two, that they did not feel comfortable outside the club and had to go to this club to do what they wanted to do? And in that club, in the boogie woogie, they felt very comfortable um, expressing their desires, and it was a, it was like a, a place of freedom. It certainly was a place of freedom for a lot of folk. I mean, it was also a place that people felt that they could talk back. Um, and, but I, you know, this kind of gets to this whole question about uh, my role as observer and 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 or participating um, and. I don't know. I, I guess I, I want to mention that as a way to, I don't want to sound too didactic, but I want to talk a little bit about this question about inside or outside. Do you mind if I talk about that for a minute? Terry? Yeah. I said, do you mind if I talk about that for a moment about this whole no, please do. of inside or outside? Because, because sure. In, in many ways, what, you, what you're asking is a question that relates to this issue of 
you know, being a, an observer or being a participant. Because the ethnographer isn't an observer. And, and, and you know, just like all other social scientists, but the ethnographic immersion also implies um, participation. And that's like the second pole of this dialectical method of participant observation. And I think, and probably I think it's one of the most discussed questions and issues that we, we hear in this dimension of, of ethnographic research, right? Because listen, by asserting the need to participate in this after hours club scene, to participate in the field, the ethnographer, and what, I want, what I'm doing is I make a series of important claims. Let me just mention a few of those. First, the first claim is that observation is not enough for, for yielding knowledge. And second, that um, observation can, it cannot be, I think, entirely objective, but rather uh, it, it sort of depends on the context. And the third point, I think, is that the observer uh, gains knowledge by embracing his or her active presence in the field. So as an ethnographer, what do I do? I make claims. I make claims against empirical science. In other words, that the control uh, of the environment in which it takes place only yields partial knowledge. Remember, the reason for setting up tightly you know, controlled experiments, it primarily has to do with the need to repeat the experiment several times to validate you know, a hypothesis, right? So this repetition in a similar environment, what does it do? It allows for the observation of constant behavior while the introduction of variation in the environment allows for the observation of a change in behavior and thereby for identifying its, its cause. Without going too deep into this, what I want to say is that at the other end of the spectrum, ethnography does something else. And, 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 and it tries not to control the, the environment. I'm not trying to control what goes on in that club, but rather I'm trying to understand the situation as it unfolds. I'm trying to understand what all these folk are doing at the same time. And it's not easy to do that because it's not just that it would, uh, uh, in most situations, be impossible to set up uh, a situation where you could control what everybody is doing. But this ethnography business is tricky. It also asserts something else, and that is when you're faced with, with, these, with this complex situation of, uh, uh, as social persons and this turbulence of, of actions taking place, of forces taking place, of processes taking place, of interactions taking place that exist well beyond the individual, observation as a standalone method can only allow for a particular glimpse, a partial glimpse of that social world. And that's all I could do. And that's where participation comes in because by participating, what I am able to to, uh, I'm able to, to reach a deeper understanding of the social world. I'm, 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 I'm able to, I can look at different modalities in, in this particular uh, participation takes place, to, uh, take place. 
uh, from conversations to actual work of training side by side with, you know, with my uh, accomplices. Um, so I have to keep in mind that I live in that world. And we as ethnographers, we live in the, in the world. We are, the world that we are conducting um, as a matter of daily life. We, what are we doing? We're investigating our, uh, invent, investing our time we, and participating through our actions, through our thoughts, through our emotions in the very situation that I'm uh, observing. So, so that means that this observation implies a, an active presence. Um, from, from my physical and mental presence, it can't, you know, really remain distinct from this interaction to which I'm, I'm participating, and of course, uh, influencing as well. I want to go back for a second to um, changing, changing social mores. So, in 1962, Howard Becker writes this book, The Outsider, and chapter one is the marijuana smoker. And the marijuana smoker in that chapter is seen as a degenerate by the public, um, and the marijuana smoker recognizes that, um, but actually he doesn't really find much wrong with what he's doing. Um, but 60 years later, um, the marijuana smoker is no longer viewed so much as a degenerate at all, but has become much more mainstream. In your analysis of the cocaine smoker, um, my understanding is that you did this original research um, maybe 15 to 20 years ago. Do you think that there's been significant changes in social mores as it relates to the cocaine use um, or other drug use? Has it gone more mainstream? Are the social mores different now? Um, and how will that club, uh, does it need to be underground in a club that goes on in the middle of the night in a neighborhood that has no suspicion that it's going on? Well, I think the mores have changed a bit, but they've changed for, 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 for different reasons and for different folk. I think if you look at the way black folk are treated uh, in their use of these chemicals, it's very different than the way whites are treated, for example, or others are treated. And, uh, and so there's been a, obviously um, an attempt to make those changes, but it really hasn't happened. Uh, it hasn't happened completely. The After Hours Club is still, and there, there are uh, still after hours clubs around. Those clubs are, are for the most part, uh, still hidden. They're still underground. Um, and you can still find um, some of these some some of these locations that are available for um, for I guess the the wealthy. But you don't see as as much uh, as that world as you used to. And. Who, who was the clientele in the Boogie Woogie? How do they differ by race, by income, by um, social class? How did, were they, and it, it, did they congregate by race, social class, and interests, or was it just, why, how did it work? Well, well first of all, you had different uh, kinds of uh, categories of folk there. The After Hours Club world was a hustler's world. Which means that you had most most people there who who controlled the the, uh, the the clubs were people who had enough money to to pay hundreds of dollars every night uh, to be part of it. So you had the hustle class was the main class of folk who who you saw there. But then you had a little bit of everybody who would come. People from the from the local communities would come and hang out. Um, you had 
visitors. Once in a while, you even see tourists uh, in the after-hours club. So um, there was a, a veritable mix of mixture of different folk who made the after-hours club their home. You know, you also, um, you know, did an ethnographic analysis of a crack house. And in the crack house, um, what it was, it was, I found it extremely shocking and, and more disturbing than I expected. Um, but with the Boogie Woogie, um, you seem to be much more open-minded and, and not um, horrified or shocked by what you saw. As a matter of fact, you sort of thought it was fine. Why do you, how do you distinguish these uh, two environments, and why are you um, more optimistic on the on the cocaine bar, for example? Well, I think what happened, happened with crack cocaine is that it was a, a, a change in the way in which uh, people identified with the drug. With the cocaine use, there was a there was a a, a kind of etiquette that existed. People would share. Um, there was an attempt to, um, well, there was also sexuality there, but in the crack house, there was no sharing. Um, there was often a lot of bickering that went, that went on. You didn't see the kind of conviviality that you, that you see uh, in the, the cocaine world. And so it was a very different kind of environment that you found yourself in when you uh, were watching what was happening in, in crack houses as opposed to what was going on in the cocaine world. So, You also explained in Crack House that none of the characters in that environment ever seemed to get out and rejoin, um, I'll call it the real world, in any meaningful way. They kind of always slip back into the crack community. Um, what was the relationship like for the boogie-woogie uh, cocaine users? Were they able to engage and participate fully in, in the, uh, the more normal world, or did they, um, I'll call it, slip back into the, into the pure cocaine world? I think it has to do with, 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 the pharmaco with pharmacology. Um, what happens when one engages with, the, with crack cocaine is uh, almost an immediate obsession. Um, and the cocaine users didn't have that that kind of what they call the monkey on their back. They had an opportunity to simply just move from one place to another. They could use the drug for, at the party, party level, which what the after hour club was. And then, but the crack user did not seem to be able to control or have any control over what the, what the chemical did to them. And, and as a result, this kind of addiction, if you will, really was, was rather profound for people who chose to smoke the, the drug um, as opposed to snorting it. So that inhalation, the difference between um, snorting and smoking was really pro a rather profound change in the, 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 man, the mind of the person who happened to be uh, to be indulging. So it was a very different different world if you were if you decided to smoke. You um you did work on crack, you did work on cocaine, and now you've moved into ethnographic analysis uh, of sex in public places. 
Um, how would you contrast that, that movement of your work? What, what are the key things to learn um, in your new work on sex? Well, what I've been doing today follows a, 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 the same kind of pattern. That's to say, I, I'm out in the field and I observe and hear and see what, what goes on, and then I try and record um, that behavior or try and find a link to someone who can, who can assist me in, that, uh, in learning about that, that behavior. Basically, I'm, I basically uh, see this as a uh, being curious about the world that I happen to be involved in. And every location that I've gone to, from teenage life to housing to crack to cocaine world, it's always had an element of sex involved. And I thought if, if I could start to recall um, and I took notes, of course, I have lots of field notes and I have journals, and I noticed that this pattern was, was consistent um, in all the work that I was doing, that there was an element of sex. And as a result of that, I, I put those notes together, and this was now over um, a four decades, um, and I decided to put it together and, and uh, as a volume. So Columbia was interested in it, and I started to collect notes from everyone who was involved in some way or another, and that became the soft city. It's about public sex, of course, but it covers that 40-year period. Terry, thank you so much. Um, I have a feeling that once your book comes out, I'm going to have you back on the show to discuss more about it. Uh, in the meantime, we're going to segue away to something completely different, which is uh, the industrial lab. I'm going to start with uh, Mike Hiltzik, who will speak for six minutes, and then to be followed by John Gartner. Mike is going to talk about um, his book, Dealers of Lightning, Xerox Park and the Dawn of the Computer Age. Mike, go ahead. Well, thanks, Larry. Um, the, the question that Larry asked me to answer, which was uh, – how did Xerox blow it, meaning how did it blow the opportunities it was given by the brilliant scientists and engineers it hired for its Palo Alto Research Center, I think perhaps isn't exactly the right question to ask about PARC. The right question, it seems to me, should be, did Xerox blow it? And the answer requires some nuance. If you think that Xerox should have exploited PARC's invention of the Alto, the first personal computer, by launching the personal computer market, then you'll think the answer is yes. But if you think Xerox never made any money from PARC, which is sort of the received wisdom, the answer is no. PARC invented the laser printer, and Xerox made a ton of money from that technology alone. And if you think Xerox blew it because it was in the perfect position to exploit PARC's inventions, not only the Alto, but Ethernet, and the graphical user interface and the perfected use of the mouse, the answer is still no, because Xerox as a corporation was never structured in a way that would have allowed it to change course from dealing copiers to selling personal computers, moving from a market that had dominated outright into one that didn't even exist at the time of the Alto's invention in the early 1970s. 
It's also true that the stated goal of Xerox, which was to find a next-generation product, was at odds with the way Park's new employees worked, which was to follow their noses as they worked out the science and engineering of the inventions they wanted to make, not to start with the goal of creating a commercial product. They eventually got frustrated with Xerox's inability to market their inventions, but part of the problem was their own preconception of their own goals. So let's take a look at the Xerox of 1971 when Park opened. It was a company that was a prisoner of its own success. Its 914 copier was the most successful industrial product maybe ever. Xerox had a quarter million salespersons hawking the 914. And by the way, they weren't selling the 914 because you couldn't buy it. You could only lease it. The sales force made their money as commissions on the pages put through the copier by their clients. Typically, a 914 was placed in a big room, the copier room in an office, and secretaries would line up to use it. And every time they copied a page, a counter would click. So when Park showed the Alto to the Xerox sales force, the first question they heard was, where's the click? That is, how will I count pages to be paid for if no paper is going through this machine? A big company with a quarter million salespeople hawking a narrow line of products was simply not going to be able to scrap its successful business model and try another untested model. You might say, well, IBM did that, but IBM was a company, was a computer company. Xerox was essentially a manufacturing and marketing company with a single product line, which was not a computer. And Xerox knew that. It placed Park on the West Coast, so there would be no infection by Park of the optical and industrial engineers at its main lab in Webster, New York, outside Rochester. The explicit model for Park was Bell Labs, about which you'll hear in a couple of minutes, but AT&T, which owned Bell Labs, was also a very different company from Xerox. By the way, Xerox did try to commercialize Park's technology. In 1982, it introduced the Xerox Star, an integrated hardware and software system that would have a central processor, a big machine in a big office, and terminals on every secretary's desk. This was a gorgeous machine. I was present at the last demo of a star in 1998 when the star's original engineers came up with, with all of the little bits and pieces they still had in their basements and their attics and rebuilt a star for a demo at Park itself. Its software and hardware was flawlessly integrated in a way you still don't see on today's PCs, and it had a high-quality graphical screen. But it was Xerox-scaled, a big central machine that would cost more than $16,000 for the central unit alone, add in the terminals for a medium-sized office, and you were talking about an investment of $125,000, even a quarter million dollars, which priced it out of the office market. And then came the IBM PC, a feeble machine compared to the Star. No graphics, no integrated programs, but it only cost $2,000 each. Now let me close by relating what Park did give us all, some of it through companies that were started by or joined by its alumni as they began to leave in the mid-1980s. Ethernet, 
PDF formatting through Adobe, of course the laser printer, and Microsoft Word, which grew out of a program called Bravo, invented by Charles Simone at Park. Exploiting and marketing those innovations needed not a big, over-focused, centralized company like Xerox, but a small, hungry company that would come to the market without legacy preconceptions. A company like the one that Park alumnus Larry Tesler joined in 1980 as employee number 31. That company was Apple. Tesla brought Park's DNA to Apple, helping to create the Lisa and the Macintosh in the early 80s. So did Xerox blow it? If you're thinking about the technologies that it spread throughout the world and the spirit of innovation it gave birth to, the answer is no. The world took a negative lesson from Park that Xerox failed with Park, but it's the wrong lesson. Thanks, Mike. All right, we'll drill down on that in a second. In the meantime, we're going to hear from John Gertner. John is an author and writer for the New York Times Magazine on science, technology, and innovation. And he's written the book, The Idea Factory, Bell Labs, and the Great Age of American Innovation. John, tell us about Bell Labs. Uh, sure. Thanks, Mike. Uh, thanks, Larry. Uh, yeah, maybe I'll just jump into just a little bit of history before I sort of get into those kind of meteor, issue, meteor issues of how, uh, how Bell Labs and, and the uh, industrial lab of today sort of overlap or don't overlap. Uh, you know, just as a quick backgrounder, um, for those who don't know, Bell Labs was the R&D lab for AT&T back when AT&T had been granted an effective monopoly on phone service by the U.S. government. And so if we go back 100 years um, to pick up a theme that came up earlier in this phone call, AT&T had a kind of vertical and horizontal control of uh, phone communications in the U.S. It controlled all the long-distance phone service and phone lines. Uh, it controlled either all or part of all these local phone companies like uh, New York Telephone or Southwestern Bell, uh, which were the direct link to the consumers or the subscribers, as they were called back then. And AT&T also controlled all the manufacturing through a division called Western Electric. So they made all the wires, switchboards, headsets, phones, everything from the smallest component to the largest component in the phone system. Um, I mean, most important to what we're talking about today, in 1925, the phone executives in New York created Bell Labs as a way to plot the future of communications in America. So the phone company, the phone lab, Bell Labs, was going to do near-term R&D to solve everyday problems. And these were huge problems, like how do you increase the capacity for switching or for calls, or how do you speed up connections? But Bell Labs would also employ people who could think about what was possible in the long term, and I mean really the long term. And these were much deeper questions, such as can the current technology of the phone system actually accommodate the needs of a massive number of future users? Or do you, in fact, need some kind of breakthrough technology to accommodate that future clientele? Um, or other deep questions, like do you, do you actually need operators to connect calls, or can the entire system function automatically? Um, so the idea of the modern industrial lab really goes back to, I think, the German pharmaceutical companies in the late 1800s. But I think one thing that differentiated Bell Labs um, really from its founding in 1925, but especially in the sort of period right after World War II when it sort of hit its stride, um, especially from other corporate labs, because GE actually has a corporate lab that predates it, is that the scale here was much larger, and the interdisciplinary approach, I mean, between engineering, physics, chemistry, and the like, was much more involved. 
And um, you know, we're talking thousands and thousands of engineers and scientists. If we homed in on Bell Labs in the mid-century, they had about 7,000 people working there. By the 1970s, it was more like 25,000 people just at Bell Labs. So you know, we see just you know, those weren't all PhDs, but but it was a, it was an enormous institution with all sorts of depths of knowledge and all sorts of different disciplines. And what also differentiated the labs to some extent was that balance between research and development. Or more precisely, I think the balance between the research department, which was heavily composed of PhDs and which made up about one-tenth of the staff, and the development department, which was much more heavily skewed towards engineers. And as Bell Labs' reputation grew, even early on, it could hire the best scientists and engineers in the country. And this was aided in part by the Great Depression, um, which allowed the phone monopoly to hire people. They had money at a time when universities did not. And indeed, some of the people who were hired during the Great Depression or just after really became some of the great stars of Bell Labs, like William Shockley, a co-creator of the transistor, and Claude Shannon, um, father of information theory, and, and others of, of that group. Um, so, you know, when we look at what came out of Bell Labs, you know, the list is, is far longer than what I'll go into here. A lot of it is actually knowledge and not products. But the existed really, we have to remember, during the golden age of telecommunications, um, there were all sorts of smaller innovations during the early years that allowed for phone calls to actually be dependable and have a sort of reasonable fidelity. But, you know, beginning from the 20s onward, there were breakthroughs such as high-quality vacuum tubes that actually allowed for a call to go from coast to coast. And after that, in the post-war period, there's the transistor, which is probably the most important invention of the 20th century, arguably. Um, certain crucial kinds of lasers, communication satellites, information theory and digital communications, um, the whole idea of a cellular phone service, not the actual phone, which was, came out of Motorola in the early days, but the actual plan for how to create a service like that was a Bell Labs idea. And also there were mistakes. This was a, a big company that, that, that did make missteps, um, belly flops, like the picture phone, which um, presaged video conferencing by about 20 years. And uh, I think being early in that stage is a lot like being wrong. So, you know, I think there's a lot of emphasis or a lot of focus on what the research department of Bell Labs achieved, you know, a breakthrough of ideas, and that's fitting. But I think it's worth thinking, too, about its success in terms of development and deployment. Um, and, in fact, that might be a significant differentiating factor when we look at why Bell Labs succeeded for so long. There's, I think, this notion of a monopoly being anti-innovation and competition fostering, you know, very few big I'm sorry, competition is fostering bigger innovations. But I think it's worth considering that Bell Labs succeeded not just because of its research breakthroughs and its talented staff, but because it had a monopoly whereby it could work on really difficult problems for decades and fold in hardware into its system that was controlled by its parent company over the course of many years because it could. It had no competition. And um, really, I think that's crucial if we want to look at why Bell Labs could innovate so spectacularly uh, we should consider that it had these geniuses on staff, but also that it didn't have the risks that corporate labs face today, where they wonder if they can possibly monetize breakthroughs on a short schedule. Um, is it worth investing in a blue sky idea? Will it pay off in time? Can these expenditures be justified? And those were not problems while well, Bell Labs was part of the monopoly uh, that it had to face the way that corporate labs do today. And, um, you know, if we want to look at the demise of Bell Labs, I think we have to look at the breakup of AT&T in the late 1970s, which also split Bell Labs also. It went into different places. Parts went with 
the new AT&T parts went into Lucent. And um, ultimately, I think the greatness of this industrial lab um, was sort of lost for two fundamental reasons. It lost its scale as it was divided up, which meant it lost its huge funding and, it, and its breadth of talent. And it lost its connection to the monopoly where it could implement these ideas over long periods of time. So suddenly, you know, the R&D window it used to have five years, 10 years, even 20 or 25 years went to three or four years at best. And, um, you know, there are other reasons too. Telecommunications, the industry was deregulated, a host of competition spread up, sprang up, uh, the center of innovation and gravity moved to the West Coast. And um, Bell Labs, you know, um, in, in time became part of, as I said, AT&T, part of Lucent. Now it's part of Nokia. It still exists as a name. But in the same time, you know, the software and electronics industry have moved to Silicon Valley, as has the venture capital money, and of course, a lot of the talent too. Um, so just, you know, to finish up quickly, um, I know we're getting low on time. You know, there are a lot of lessons here um, that I go into in the book, but I think uh, when I'm asked sometimes, you know, was Bell Labs, you know, can we re recreate it? Should we recreate it? And I, I tend to say, well, I don't think so. Bell Labs was part of the right industry at the right time. Um, somebody had once described it to me as that this was a problem-rich environment. You were creating a phone service from scratch, and it necessitated these incredibly significant and challenging solutions to create long-distance service and switching and transmission and capacity and fiber optics and all sorts of other really, really difficult problems. So that question of is it a model for, for corporate labs today or is it a model for innovation, I usually say I'm not so sure. You know, it's, it's, it's scale and its ambitions and its connections to the government because it did defense work. We're all sort of unique and intervolved. Um, but on the other hand, I think it's culture of excellence and uh, it's leaders' decisions to go beyond what was merely sufficient and look for things that were ex exceptional. I think that's really important. And I think that is something that's aspirational and adaptable and has kind of in some ways moved to other companies where a lot of Bell Labs alumni um, or where their influence has been felt, especially Google and Microsoft and Apple. Um, so in some ways, I think perhaps the lab's culture isn't dead, even if the lab is not really anything like it once was. And um, I don't think that idea of a far-reaching, insanely ambitious, hugely funded corporate lab is going to come around again. Um, and I think, you know, if we look at some kinds of, you know, huge labs that might spring up in the future to solve problems, I kind of think a different model might obtain, something like uh, Los Alamos or uh, the RAD lab, which was set up at MIT in World War II or even the Apollo program where they're following, you know, a real specific problem to be solved. Um, but, you know, as for, um, as for uh, Google, Apple, and Amazon, I'll just read a, you know, just some, you know, something that, that, you know, these companies, uh, the companies we're used to today, the, the sort of big, almost near monopolistic tech companies, um, they're not part of a highly regulated national public trust the way Bell Labs was. Um, they're superb at producing a specific and limited, I think, range of technology products. But at the end of the day, I think scientific knowledge matters much less to them than the demands um, of their customers, employees, and shareholders. And that's not a knock on those companies. I think it's just a sign of the changing times. John, thank you. All right, let's go straight to Q&A. Um, so uh, a few weeks ago, we had Ernie Freeberg discuss um, Thomas Edison and the innovative entrepreneur. And I took a class at Penn in the History of Science Department with Thomas Hughes, and he mm -hmm. argued that the age of Edison was over and that we were 
forever going to be in the age of the um, industrial lab. But I think as you were suggesting, John, that the age of the industrial lab um, may have come to an end. Um, what is it, um, you know, we're, as a country, we're very concerned about a combination of basic research and applied research. Um, and some of these firms, just, they just couldn't, they couldn't handle competition. They, when I look at my phone right now, um, you know, you know, I called in on Skype. Um, I'm using an apparatus. My headset was made by Bose. Um, none of these were really, uh, 18, these certainly weren't made by Western Electric. Um, why, why were these firms incapable of making that adjustment to the next technology? Um, you know, Mike, just when, I, when it comes to you, I, I would say, you know, when you said Xerox was a copier company, it wasn't a computer company, so you couldn't do it. So Neil opened the discussion by saying that, you know, Amazon constantly changes what it is. What is it about industrial labs? What is it about these firms that yeah. we're not unable to take next level? And let me take on that because take on that question because uh, you know by studying Xerox, I came to some conclusions about the life cycle of uh, of corporations. And and I think the fact is that if you look at uh, at big businesses, um, it's very very hard for a corporation to survive major changes in technology or markets. We do not have a lot of examples in which that's happened. Uh, if you look at the companies that were part of the Dow Jones Industrial Average when it started and the companies that are part of it now, there's, there's only been one that actually survived for, for almost all of that period, and that was General Electric. And it's no longer in the Dow uh, because of some recent changes in its business model. Um, IBM was better than most at, at basically um, accommodating and absorbing major changes in technology. But if you look at IBM now, it looks like it's run out that string. So most companies basically live and die in much more limited cycles of technology and, and, and markets. Xerox was simply never going to be one of those companies because it sort of inherited the technology that made it so many millions of dollars from outside. Chester Carlson came to Xerox when it was Halloid Corporation and, and sort of brought it the copier and then they made a mint from the copier and were trapped, as I said trapped by it. So its ability to, to, to move on from that was very, very limited. And I think that's what you see in almost every major company. They, they all have, a, 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 even the most successful ones, have a limited lifespan. Um, yeah, I, I agree very much with Mike. I mean, I think that, that um, you know, certainly it's, it's very hard to imagine Bell Labs or the AT&T of, of the 60s or 70s adapting as they almost could not to, to sort of the Internet. Um, and, you know, the, the, um, the, the, the notion that um, it had, as, as some of the scientists there told me, you know, the, their entire model, the entire way everybody there thought was in a sort of monopolistic system. Um, it wasn't that they were bad at technology. In fact, they were very good and they weren't any less intelligent or less sort of strategic. 
but they could not operate in sort of the world as it evolved. They were stuck in a certain sort of, or trapped as, as, as Mike had said, which I agree, in, in a certain world that the company itself could not evolve quickly enough. There was just, that was just impossible. Yeah, this is Mike again. I would add, you know, apropos of AT&T, and I think John probably knows this very well, is that AT&T's um, appetite for innovation was, it was strong in some places, but limited in others. And in fact, when um, uh, when the Pentagon wanted to basically create a network that would tie together all the networks that it was funding at universities all around the country, its major blockade came from AT&T, which monopolized basically the, the phone lines and the communication system in the U.S. and refused to allow data to be transmitted over its lines, or at least really resisted that. And as a result, the Pentagon, through Bob Taylor at, at ARPA, basically had to fund its own network of networks itself. This became the ARPANET, which then morphed into the NSF Net for National Science Foundation. And today, we know it as the precursor to the Internet. So, so innovators sort of had to go around and circumvent the monopolists of that era and find their own ways of doing things. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And, and I think that, you know, at that point, Bell Labs and, and AT&T had, had shifted from, or if, I don't even know if they'd shifted, but, but certainly the mindset was one not of adaptation uh, or of getting in front of a new technology, but of, but of paranoia or, or self-defense. Um, and I, I think that's indicative of, of, of that kind of big company thought. You know, the theory of, of why the industrial lab would dominate against the entrepreneurial innovator was that um, you had this group, as you described it, John, of brilliant basic scientists in physics, chemistry. You had some of the leading engineers all in the next room, and when they faced a very difficult problem, all they had to do was walk down the hall, explain the situation to another genius, and lo and behold, they could come up with the answer. Um, I guess my question is, is twofold. One, um, you said that during the Great Depression there was uh, an excess of talent, but today talent is bit up like crazy, and I can't imagine that if we had geniuses at Caltech or MIT that they're going to run to a phone company to go to work. Um, they would go to, as you said, the West Coast to, to work at some uh, venture deal where they could probably make uh, millions and millions of dollars. Um, and so there was also a cost of bureaucracy, um, you know, Going to the Kodak example, it's it's difficult to get, run a digital world in a company that's that's analog based. Um, how do you think? Of, and there was also uh, a concern that there was uh, available capital to follow these dreams. So today, capital is very readily available, and it's not clear that GE or AT and T would be the best allocators of capital to these sort of problems. Yeah, th uh, this is Mike again. Um, I think the idea that uh, you know that that in some golden age. Um, Geniuses would walk down the hall, you know, and collaborate with one another. It's possible to overstate that. Um, at Park, which is often held up as the model, one of the models, along with Bell Labs, of this collaborative, innovative spirit, there were two major labs working on computer science. One was the um, uh, the system science lab, and the other was the, the 
computer science lab, and they were two fiefdoms that more often than not were at each other's throats. And I remember asking Severin Arnstein, who was one of the uh, system science lab members who also had played an important role in developing uh, the Internet in its earliest stage. I asked him about that, and he said, yeah, yeah, very soon after they set up these separate labs, and one was under Bob Taylor, who was the guy from ARPA brought into Xerox, another was under Bert Sutherland, who was a brilliant um, uh, uh, systems computer science scientist, he said it was very soon that it began to be an us versus them. And he sort of chuckled and he said, I thought this is how wars start. Um, so, yeah, yeah, and maybe that sort of competition actually did aid innovation because they were competing with each other, but they weren't always collaborating with each other. So, um, and, but, but, you know, you're also right, Larry, when you talk about how, you know, the, um, basically the, um, um, the, the center of funding for this sort of work is no longer at the corporate level because corporations can't get funding for this through their boards of directors. You know, the boards want, what are you doing that will help us bring out the next product in our business model? But, it, but it's coming from entrepreneur, innovative entrepreneurs themselves, as you, as you alluded to, uh, a little bit earlier, and they're accessing venture capital, and they're building their own companies. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, hi, and, this is Brad Thompson. Oh, okay. Sorry, hi, this is, this is Brad Thompson, and uh, I have a question for John and Mike. I'm wondering if you can identify, um, either at Bell or at Xerox, specific decisions by specific people uh, that were bad decisions that that hurt the company in some fundamental way. Um, well, this is Mike and Xerox. I'm not sure you could really do that. I, I mean, you know, there's certainly, you know, in, in terms of the development of Park, there were points at which some of the Park uh, scientists and engineers went to headquarters and said, "Look, we have this thing." Would you like to bring it out? And we're, and and they just faced a corporate bureaucracy that was they, they weren't being refused, but they were being sort of ignored and neglected. Um, now there were points at which people had to step in to save Park. There was one particular uh, moment when there was the, the the board of Xerox was inclined to sort of defund Park because it hadn't done anything in five years. And John Bardeen, who I think John knows because he was a former, he was one of the inventors of the transistor, who was then on the Xerox board, personally stood in for Park and stood in front of the hangman and said, don't you dare, you know, you can't do that. This may be your future, so hang in there. So, um, so there were moments at which Park was really on the skids, and then it wasn't until the 80s that when, you know, new management came into Xerox and said, Park now has to be much more integrated into our business plan and our business model, and um, that started a whole uh, sort of avalanche of changes at Park. Let me ask the question that Brad just asked in a different way, uh, but it's basically inherently the same question. Mike, when you tell the story about, um, you know, the, the guys at Park telling management in Connecticut that this is like the greatest thing ever, you know, they kind of give them a yawn. They don't understand the product. They have no idea how to market. They don't understand it. 
And you contrast that was Steve Jobs shows up with a couple of other guys, and these guys are just, you know, savoring at the insights of this group and recognize the, uh, the, the opportunity available in products to radically change the way we live our lives. Um, so the executives and how we manage it play a, a critical role in the success of these products. Xerox didn't have it. It's not enough to have an industrial lab. You also have to have Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos who can then take it and understand what the customer wants. I mean, as you said, Mike, when they offered a quarter of a million dollar computer that had great graphics but was incredibly slow and couldn't run VisiCalc, um, it's garbage. It doesn't have a place. It won't, it's, not a, it's not an item. Well, yeah, yeah that, there a couple of points you made that I think um, are, are really sort of ironic. Number one is the reason that Steve Jobs got Entree into Park to see what they were doing was because Xerox was an investor in Apple before the IPO. And Jobs, when, when Xerox, Xerox had a venture arm, and when they came to Steve Jobs and said, we want to put some money in your company, Jobs said, yeah, you're welcome to do that, but there's a lot of competition to get, you know, to fund us, and we will let you in if you let me into Park. So, uh, so he got his demo, and he brought his team, and they saw things that, in, in many cases, they were already working on, but they got the confidence by seeing that Park had implemented these things to go on and say, it can be done, and we will, we will do it maybe not in the same way. And now, when you mentioned VisiCalc, um, there's a very, very interesting story about VisiCalc, as your listeners may know, was a spreadsheet program. It was the first spreadsheet program, and it was one of the keys to the success of the Macintosh because it came bundled with the Macintosh. And it was great for business because business could, could do bu budgets, they could do what-if tests and all these things. And I asked one of the park, you know, one of the, the original park geniuses, I said, how come you never did a spreadsheet? How come you didn't invent VisiCalc? And they looked at me and they said, well, we never had to do a budget. So we never needed anything like this. So it never occurred to us to do that. But what they did want to do was graphics and, and basically new inputs and that sort of thing. And that's what they excelled at. I have a question for Sunil um, Gupta, if you're still on the line. Sunil, when you hear the story about um, these industrial labs and their uh, inability to take things, products to market, how, do you, how would you teach this at the Harvard Business School of, of challenges to existing corporations to use basic and applied research? So I think this sort of goes back to what one of my former colleague, uh, Clay Christensen, wrote about innovator's dilemma. And I think this is what Mike and John talked about, which is large corporations like Xerox have an existing business, which is a multi-billion dollar business, and it's very hard to self-cannibalize with a new technology. Uh, and for a new company, new entrepreneurial company like uh, Steve Jobs with Apple at that point in time, a $20 million or $50 million or $100 million business is a huge upside, whereas for Xerox, that cuts into a billion-dollar business. So that's a tip, very classic innovative dilemma that Clay Christian has showed in multiple industries. And that's why uh, I think what, what both John and Mike are saying is very hard for large established companies to create these industrial labs uh, because innovation is both invention and commercialization. So they can invent, but they can't commercialize. But, but I have a question for John specifically, which is when he talks about the demise of industrial labs, 
What's your view on Google X, which is trying to be the new Bell Labs of, with Moonshot Factory, as they call it? Is it doomed to be a failure? Yeah, yeah that's a great question, Neil. Um, I, early on, I went to visit um, Google X, and I spent some time out there and, and, and talked to those folks out there. Um, you know, and, and as, as you may know, they're looking at a, a larger or longer time frame for, you know, commercialization. They're looking at 10 years uh, for, um, uh, for a time frame as opposed to, say, two, three, four years at top. So um, they're giving themselves more time. I, you know, I don't know. I, I think, I think, I think the, um, the jury is out, so to speak. I mean, I think that, you know, what we've seen so far, I, it's hard to know that if it's actually going to kind of score big. I mean, from the start, Google X has said if they have one massive breakthrough, that will be great. If they have two, that will be terrific. Um, so I think um, we're still sitting and waiting. I mean, I, I think one thing that, that, that I sort of always point out is that you know, Google itself or Alphabet now has enjoyed a spectacularly profitable run. So there's very little pressure, I think, on sort of you know, funding um, Google X at the moment. Uh, so I think it, you know, it had, had, had the parent company not, you know, had they faced some serious pressure, I think things would be different. But um, as for now, I, I wouldn't make a prediction on, on failure. They certainly have a lot of interesting ideas. I just, um, I'm just not sure how they'll be able to commercialize them. Sunil, what did you think of John's comment about the benefit of monopoly to create innovation and taking near-term profit incentives out to allow for more long-term basic research? As you think about it from a public policy perspective, would you say that um, you know, maybe we should allow firms to have some excess profits to do this? Or would you push this basic research out of the corporation altogether um, and subsidize it the way we are currently doing a lot of it through our university system? So I think it's, a, it's a, probably a, a provocative idea because monopoly have, monopolies have the option, as John pointed out, because they are not under serious threat from the competition, so they can deploy their resources for long-term innovations. But at the same time, they can coast along without innovation mm -hmm. uh, and return the, the money to the shareholders, and there's increasing pressure from the shareholders to return the money. So Comcast had a monopoly for a long time on the cable in certain parts of the country, and they did not invent uh, till mm -hmm. there was a pressure from other players. So I'm not quite sure. It's almost like having a benevolent dictator. Uh, yeah. So dictatorship could be good if you have the right person on, on, on board, but it could be terrible if you don't. So I don't think, I mean, it may have worked out in the case of AT&T because you have the right incentive at the top management levels. But I'm not quite sure monopoly will always lead to uh, the great innovation. Yeah. I'd agree with that very much, though. I think they had, they had a very you know, unique situation, both in terms of management and, and uh, mandate. And I think that's right. John, when, when you think about the future of industrial labs and innovation, whether it be the entrepreneur, um, innovator, or large industrial labs making applied and basic research improvements. When we you know, come back 25 years from now, where, where do you think the industrial lab will be? Will it have a new renaissance? Do, or do you think mm -hmm. that um, its greatest days are behind us uh, back to the 1930 to 1970 period for AT&T's yeah, I tend to think the days, the great days, are behind us, um, and and I don't say that as a as a kind of tragedy. I mean, I think the system we have, you know, in terms of of knowledge creation, 
and innovation, you know, works works very well in a lot of respects. I, I think we can see um, significant gaps, specifically, I think, in the energy energy industry, where I think we have sort of questions and problems of policy and deployment, um, where you know we we obviously have sort of these sort of incumbency issues. And I think that's you know incredibly problematic, especially you know to someone like me. And I think a lot about climate change and how to sort of accelerate things. And I think we're seeing sort of movement in that in that sphere. You know, certainly with policy now on, on the federal level. Um, but um, I guess I would just say that that um, you know you know the in terms of, of sort of more funding for for basic research I, I mean I think we're probably going to see that in the next couple of years um, but I think um, really those kinds of questions um, are not about sort of can we have a renaissance of industrial labs but can we sort of solve some of the big problems that we're facing whether they be like the next pandemic or whether they be climate change and sort of cleaner energy system um, through development and deployment especially deployment um, and I don't think that's like an industrial lab type question. Yeah, sure I, I, I hope that answers you. Yeah. Mike, and I, I'd like to uh, to sort of um, uh, agree with that and, and augment it a bit. Um, we've talked a little bit um, in the last few minutes about basic research and applied research, and and I think uh, you know John's made the point, and I would agree that it's going to be harder and harder for industrial labs even to deal with applied research. Uh, and fund it, um, uh, especially if it's sort of open-ended application. I think the real crisis uh, um, looking, uh, confronting us in innovation is in basic research. Um, industrial labs are just not going to be equipped or funded to engage in basic research in most places. And the problem we have is that government has also been withdrawing from the funding of basic research. And this has been going on for, for many years and it really intensified under Trump, which just eviscerated the funding for basic research at all sorts of agencies, uh, you know, EPA and elsewhere. And uh, when the government steps away from basic research and grants, university grants become harder to find, the question is, where is that funding going to come from? Because it's probably not going to come from industry. Okay. All right. I, I, this is the part of the show now where we end on a note of optimism. I'm going to go around to each speaker and um, tell us uh, what you're optimistic about going forward. John Gertner, why don't I start with you? Um, I'm optimistic about the vaccination trends in the U.S. I, I hope we can see that in Asia as well. Um, that's, I think, what kind of I think about most of all, and I'm very optimistic about the future of mRNA uh, vaccines. Thank you. Michael? Yeah, well, I think I'm, I'm optimistic that the spirit of innovation uh, is still strong in this country and, in fact, uh, around the world. Um, that, you know, we may not know where the funding is going to come from. We may see innovation coming from small labs or individual entrepreneurs, but clearly there are a lot of people out there who are thinking very smartly about uh, where technology and science should be leading us, and that's, that I think is something to look, look forward for. Terry Williams, what are you optimistic about? That we have a change in the way in which people are are, are killed in the in, in the in the United States, um, 
and that we have more of an opportunity to uh, to to work toward a kind of consensus about the way that life is is being viewed in America, particularly black black males. And so um, I think the only optimism here is belief that things will change for the better than for the worse. Thank you. Brad Thompson? I am bullish about innovation in the education sector. Um, over the course of the last uh, year, there has been a rise, uh, a dramatic rise in homeschooling, which I view as a, a very good thing. And we are on the verge of great innovation in uh, university or uh, secondary um, or higher education uh, education. Um, I'm in conversations with a number of people who are on the verge of starting uh, new colleges. Great. Sunil? So I have the privilege of meeting young, passionate people every day. And I'm really optimistic that they will be the future leaders who bring in purpose along with profit in business. So it won't be, business won't be a ruthless money-making machine, but it will have a heart. Great. All right, that ends today's session, but I want to take a minute to make a plug for next week's show. Sunday, May 2nd, Tom Dijah will join us. Tom is the author of New York, New York, Four Decades of Success, Excess, and Transformation. Tom studies culture and urban economics of Gotham City, and he will explain how the city will revive after COVID. Zvi Goyo is the former Dean of Computer Science at Georgia Tech, where he has started the largest online master's program in computer science. We've heard that online universities are the future, and we'll learn from Zvi how he successfully implemented this for tens of thousands of students. Todd Benson will co-host a panel on the beverage industry. We will have four speakers, Carol Reber, who runs marketing at Duckhorn Wines, Carlton Fowler, who previously managed spirits innovation and brand development at Gallo Winery, David Epstein, who founded Tom's Distillery in Kansas City that makes crafted bourbons, and Mike Novi will join us again. He is now the new CEO of Kendall Jenner's Tequila 818. I would like to thank today's speakers for their insights. I would also like to thank our listeners both for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Please stay tuned for next Sunday to find out what happens next. Thank you and goodbye.